It's the first day of February, and we have a lot of snow on the ground. It's the winter. This week in the CLE, news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer to start off another week. Chris Quinn with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Chris Murnowski is taking a day off. Happy Monday. Happy, Happy Monday. I'm Happy glad January is over. One month down of 2021. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing that it's one month past Christmas already, but it is. Let's get going. Can I get a waiver or can't I get a waiver on late fees if I pay my property tax bill late because the post office delivered it late? Laura Johnston, as is typical with Cuyahoga County, their incompetence confused the hell out of people on this. Let's set the record straight. Yes, it was confusing. You can get a waiver, but even the county spokesman was confused about this. We originally had a story on Friday saying state law won't allow the late fee to be waived, but they changed their tune on Friday. And we had another story because the mail can be an excuse for not paying on time and you can get it waived. I think that's a pretty good thing because on Friday, I just got a flyer about a Christmas sale in the mail. So some mail is like <laughs> a month behind. Owners who missed the January 28th deadline because of their late arriving bills have two options to get a waiver. Both require submitting an additional form to the county, which can be emailed, mailed, or faxed to you. So I don't think they're online. You can either pay the property bill in full plus the late fee and then submit your application form asking for a remittance, either get a refund check or just pay less in the summer for that set of property bills. Or you can pay the tax, but not the fee, submit your application form and hope it gets approved. You know, as soon as I saw the first story, I knew that wasn't right. Of course, they could grant a waiver. I, I also question the limited amount of time the county leaves people to deal with this. They don't even mail the bills out until late. I mean, you, you forget the post office, the notorious problems they're having to deliver things where it takes mail six weeks to go across town sometimes. Why does the county send out these bills after the first of the year when they're due so short? And remember, they extended the deadline by a week. It was supposed to be the 21st, but because of the mail, they extended it to the 28th. But they're not leaving people a whole lot of time here to begin with. It's not really service to the community. I, I was stunned, though, when I saw the note saying we can't waive it. It's like, of course you can waive it. There, what, what, who, who is over there paying any attention whatsoever to what the law is? And then, of course, oh, yes, actually, you can get a waiver. Amazing what this county does with its residents. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who are the Republican entrepreneurs testing the waters for a U.S. Senate run? Jen Cahoon, we had the big name politicians stepping in or stepping out or talking about considering it. And now it's the business class coming through. <laughs> yeah, all the rich guys. OK, so <laughs> maybe the most recognizable name in Northeast Ohio anyway is Bernie Marino. He's the luxury car mogul, you know, tech entrepreneur and, and big blockchain advocate. The Wall Street Journal reported that he's considering it and that he supposedly became more interested after Congressman Jim Jordan said he wasn't going to get in the race. Marino's also a member of the Metro Health Board, and he might have a bit of a problem here because he generated some controversy last year by by tweeting what some people considered rather tone deaf comments, you know, sort of mocking coronavirus safety measures. So I think that could come back on him. But uh, you never know, I guess, in a Republican primary. Maybe that could win you some points. I don't know. Do you want I, to say anything about him? <laughs> I, I believe he was as surprised by that Wall Street Journal story as we were. You know, I've known Bernie for a while. I, I, when I was advanced Ohio president, I served on a couple of boards with him. 
And and he's always said that he would never run for office because of how ugly it is, how your family gets dragged through the mud and you get dragged through the mud and and that that he just doesn't want to put his family up for that. So I'll be I'll be surprised, actually, if he ends up putting his foot in because because of that. I mean, it is. Well, what do you think? Is he just trying to kind of get his name out there or what, what's behind this? I'm not sure he did this. I, you know, people who know him may have said that, you know, he he wonders whether he should run. Look, if he were going to run, he would come to us. I mean, we, we know him well enough that if he were going to make an announcement, I'm pretty sure he would talk to us about it because we're at the big local media. I, I just would be surprised if he did it. I, I think, look, he's a really smart guy. His life story is a fascinating one. How he built his car business after a former employer had pretty much tried to ruin him and brought him close to it. I mean, he was he was down to almost nothing before he began. It's He's a self-made guy in a big, big way. And, you know, a, a fascinating guy to talk to. He's pretty conservative. You know, he's a very much a uh, staunch Republican but a good mind. He knows how to build things. He knows how to talk to people. You're right. The social media stuff he's done, you know, he did some stuff at the beginning of COVID that was so embarrassingly bad he had to take it down and people saved it. It would all come out and he'd have some explaining to do. I just don't see it. I don't think he wants to put his family through it. So we'll have to see. Who's the other one? Uh, Well, there's another guy from Southwest Ohio who I had never heard of, and he's kind of considered a wild card, I guess, Republican. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy, and he's a wealthy biotech entrepreneur. And he told the Cincinnati Business Courier last week that that people were encouraging him to run. So who knows? He could be in the mix. And let me just mention also, this name's already been out there. But if we're talking about businessmen, entrepreneurs, there's Mike Gibbons, who got into the Republican primary in 2018 when when Sherrod Brown last ran for reelection. And He's a wealthy Cleveland businessman and a major Republican donor. He's got a super PAC called Ohio Strong Action. So, you know, all of these guys, are, I guess, are wild cards and they're all wealthy and they have access to resources. So it's kind of interesting to contemplate whether any of them might might take the step. What amazes me, Jane, is that this election is, is almost two years away and it's already... Oh. A major horse race. And I thought, oh, this is an off year. It's going to be kind of dull politically. Oh, my gosh. No way. No, they're all going to have to jockey to to try and get their names out there this year. This is I just I'm stunned. The race is on. The race is clearly on. Yeah. And and so many people want a piece of this that it will be very interesting to watch develop and, and cover. Not as many Democrats raising their their hands, but just the name Amy Acton changes the entire dynamic. So it'd be fun to watch. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there an actual meaning to the signature catchphrase of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson, it is what it is? Lord Johnston, I've known Frank Jackson for damn near 25 years. I've heard him use that phrase so many times it would be impossible to count. And I had no idea that he had a fully involved philosophy behind it, which he shared with the editorial board at Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer during a presentation of his budget last week. Right. So I think, like you said, you've heard this innumerable times that it's almost become like kind of a running joke with people or critics have used it. And I think that's how it came up in the editorial board that he said it. And, you know, there was the everybody's kind of been waiting for this to say it. So he explained it. He said, some people mistakenly believe that this phrase means surrender, that, you know, he, he cannot fix intractable problems. 
He says not so. He says he's guided by reality, that he takes a pragmatic approach to problem solving and decision making, and that he has to accept reality no matter how painful that is. The reality, he said, would be governed based on wishful thinking and make decisions based on a pie in the sky, you know, Mary Poppins kind of view of the world. And that really wouldn't be helping Cleveland at all. So he says staying attuned to reality gives him an opportunity to grapple with that and what he can change. And it's better for the city and the people of the city. Well, it's akin to right now, downtown Cleveland is facing huge challenges because everybody's working from home. And and so it, it faces challenges. So if he's in some kind of press thing and somebody says, hey, downtown is a disaster, what are you going to do about it? When he says it is what it is, people have been chalking that off to, you know, just the catchphrase. Yeah, whatever. I can't do anything about it. And what what he's really saying is, yeah, that's what it is. That's the challenge we've got to deal with. That's the reality that that faces me as I look to the future, whereas other politicians might put a glossy face on it and pretend that, that, hey, it's all going to come back. We're going to be fine. He's saying, I don't do that. I deal with the problem head on first by acknowledging it. Anyway, it, it was it was one of those moments, you know, Mark Bosberg, one of our editors, covered City Hall with me back when uh, Jackson was first elected uh, council president. So he knows him almost as well as I do. And we were on this editorial board meeting. And, you know, Frank Jackson comes over every year, presents his budget. He gives you a budget history lesson. And if you've sat through it three times or 20 times, it, it gets gets old. So you go through a half hour of the history of budgeting and blah, blah, blah. And then in the second half, when you're asking him questions, he's dropping stuff. But when the it is what it is conversation came out at the tail end, I sent a note to Mark saying, who knew? And he sent me a note saying, this was worth waiting for. And after all these years of this, we get that explanation. And he said it. Jackson said it with a grin on his face. It's like, OK, OK. You know, when he said it and everybody kind of snickered, he said, all right, all right, you're going to have to give me some discretion here. I want to explain this. This isn't just some toss off. And that's where that came from. So well, and it, he, he actually has used this phrase a whole lot less in recent years because he's gotten, you know, people like commenting on it. So maybe maybe he'll just go back to using it full time now. But I don't think anyone would ever accuse Frank Jackson of being like an overly optimistic, you know, Pollyannish leader. No, he's a realist. He always has been a realist. He sees the problems for what they are and, and deals with them. But it was nice to have that explained after, you know, 15 plus years of him being mayor. It's, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly have some explaining to do about his relationship with First Energy, the scandal embroiled utility in Akron that secretly tried to kill off Cleveland public power? Jane Cahoon, John Caniglia had one hell of a story over the weekend looking at all of the money First Energy was plowing toward Kevin Kelly. And Kevin Kelly did some talking about it. What do we know? Yeah, well, let's remind people that Kelly is now on a mission to expose this dark money that First Energy used to undermine its competitor, Cleveland Public Power. But John pointed out that Kelly does have a rather long relationship with First Energy. You know, since 2015, First Energy and a law firm that represents it have contributed $31,500 to campaign accounts that Kelly oversees. Now, he did talk to Kelly, who said, hey, the real question is, did I act appropriately? And I absolutely did. He said there isn't one vote that he's taken that was influenced by that money. 
And he also said he's going to donate $6,000 in in contributions linked to First Energy to an environmental nonprofit. And he's continuing this quest to subpoena records involving this uh, group called Consumers Against Deceptive Fees. And that's the group that that was seeking to undercut Cleveland Public Power, right? putting out all this information against some flyers and, and so forth. That group got $200,000 in, in First Energy money in 2019, and that money was, was sent through another nonprofit, Partners for Progress. And if you're following me here, that group is the one connected to this big statehouse investigation, the federal investigation of House Bill 6, the tainted nuclear bailout bill that, that benefited a former First Energy subsidiary. So there's the connection to that. And so he wants to get to the bottom of it. But I have to say, my favorite line in this story was, was from a First Energy spokeswoman who said that the utility is studying, quote, how it engages in the political process to ensure alignment with our corporate values, behaviors, and strategies. Yeah. Well, I, I think First <laughs> Energy realizes that when their CEO, Chuck Jones, came in, the whole game changed with how they were dealing in Ohio and they became much more predatory. Should name the law firm involved, Retzel and Andrus. They keep refusing to talk about their role. They're a significant Cleveland law firm. They do lots of business. I would wonder if some customers of theirs might be questioning whether to continue using them if they were participating somehow in this scheme. They were just refused to talk. The other weird tie to Cleveland City Council on this is the guy, Ken Dow, who was part of that nonprofit for the beginning, he was there for a couple of years, had worked for members of city council and had worked on Mayor Frank Jackson's campaign. So it's so it's really strange that he would <laughs> yeah. then be part of this this organization that was working to subvert the whole thing. He's another guy that refuses to talk to us, sent us a statement saying, I was working for the people of Cleveland, which, you know, clearly this was a campaign by First Energy to wreck Cleveland public power and wipe out competition. Good stuff by John Coniglia. Check it out on cleveland.com. It published in The Plain Dealer on Sunday. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why do event planners and the Ohio tourism industry think Governor Mike DeWine's limit of 300 people at gatherings is terribly unfair? And how is it harming the economy? Laura Johnston, when you read the story Susan Glaser wrote about this, you really come away thinking these people have a point. Yeah, I mean, right now, indoor gatherings are capped at 300 people, no matter the size of the venue. And we're talking about the Huntington Convention Center in Cleveland that has more than 400,000 square feet of meeting and exhibit space. Just think of that cavernous open space it has. And then it has tons of meeting rooms. It has a ballrooms. And they believe they can safely accommodate a group larger than 300. So they want to favor limits tied to the size of the venue, maybe a percentage of maximum capacity that other states have done. And they want to be able to tell meeting planners that they're open because right now, not only did they lose most of their business for 2020, most people have canceled for 2021 because they don't know what the state rules are going to be if they're even allowed to have anything there. So they want to be able to tell people, here are rules, you can start planning and have a safe number of people in it. And I've got, like, I thought about this with the IX Center too. You have to believe there's a safe way to do it. Like if people can go to a mall, like people should be able to go to a convention center. Yeah, it seems completely arbitrary. And of course, there are exceptions, right? The cabs can have thousands of people indoors in the arena because they got special permission. 
it would seem that you would base this on capacity, like it kind of done with restaurants, that you're able to have yeah, whatever, whatever science would back up, you know, 25% of your capacity or 50% of your capacity with the requirement that you build in social distancing rules and, and there's some enforcement. But to say <laughs> that some small wedding venue has the same limit as the Huntington Convention Center or the IX Center, that makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, it, it should no. be based on the size of the venue. And it seems like DeWine is just turned a deaf ear, except when it's the Cavs or somebody that, that gets into his office. Well, I guess with the Cavs, so they got their variance, you know, for almost 2,000 spectators, but apparently you'd have to get it for every event. Like, it's not like the convention center can just get one variance that covers anything that wants to go in it. Every meeting planner would have to go to the state and ask for a variance, and you don't know the outcome. So you can't expect a bunch of out-of-state meeting planners to want to go to the, the governor's office and hope they get their variance while they're planning a big convention. So I understand, like, sure, sure, you can get a variance, but it's difficult and you're not guaranteed anything. So why would you want to risk it? Well, and it kind of flies in the face of the other stuff DeWine has done. DeWine has largely counted on people at restaurants to do the right thing, right? Because he, right. he hasn't closed them down. So why not trust the event planners to do the right thing? Say, okay, you get X percent of the capacity of the venue that you have to enforce masks. You have to put in rules so that people aren't queuing up next to each other. And we will send people around to check it out. But it would it would be good for the economy to do so. You know, without, I don't think, increasing the the risk of COVID because there's so much space in those in those areas. They also claim that they've put in air handling units and things that would kill COVID as it goes through their air circulation. What does the administration say? Does DeWine say they anything? They point it to their variances. They say, look, you can get a variance. Like, but I just, I think that process is really tough for a lot of people. The only good news, the bright spot in this is that because of the way that COVID has changed working environments, I don't think you're going to see everybody having an annual conference every year where they expect everyone to go to. They're saying that there's going to be more hybrid conferences where some will be online, some will be in person. And that actually positions the size of Cleveland's convention center really well to get big name conventions because they no longer need giant amounts of space that Cleveland couldn't compete with like Chicago or Las Vegas. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. When will the teachers in Ohio get vaccinated for the coronavirus and who else is eligible starting today? Jane Cahoon, I have no vested interest in when teachers would get vaccinated. <laughs> <What> do I? <laughs> My wife is a and, teacher. Uh, and, and, and neither does Laura here. So why did I get this question anyway? <laughs> anyway, the, technically, the vaccination of teachers and school staff starts today, although some of them have already gotten a head start on this last week. On, on Friday, the state put out a whole list of which districts are in weeks one, two, three, and four, although they didn't really explain, you know, how they chose to prioritize certain districts over others. But Cleveland schools are in the second week next week. Columbus schools are set for the first week this week. And then it's in Cincinnati, they've already started them. So as we know, the the end game here is getting kids back to the classroom by by March 1st, either fully or in a hybrid format. And um, they did say, like, as of last week, about 45% of students in public school districts were were now fully in person and 36% in partial in person. So that's that's pretty significant. And it's moving forward even before, you know, these vaccinations 
are beginning. But we do know that this timetable of March 1st is a little squishy because it's not going to allow teachers and other staff to get both shots in this two-shot regimen before that date. So some of them are going to be coming back with just one shot maybe, or it's just not clear. I don't think they're going to penalize anybody who doesn't meet that exact date, but but that's what they're aiming for. And we should also mention, you know, there's still a scarcity of, of vaccines. So that complicates things. Although they did say that the school employees are not going to compete with the the rest of the people in the 1B group, the older Ohioans. And I, I think the second part of your question was who else becomes eligible? And that would be anybody over age 70 starting today. Getting who can find, find an appointment. Eventually we're going to be in there. <laughs> so I, yeah. I can tell you from personal knowledge that the teachers who are already back in the classroom felt that they should have been at the front of the line of the teachers, that that if there are teachers that are teaching remotely and there are teachers already at risk in the classroom, they thought they should have been prioritized and were kind of annoyed that they weren't because they feel like they're exposed. And that's the thing is the teachers have been on the ones that are in the classroom have felt like they've been on the front line of this thing from the beginning. They're all wearing masks the way you're supposed to, because let's face it, <laughs> the kids are not. Uh, I hear stories about this all the time. And that's, you know, what do you expect with kids? Laura, do your kids wear the masks correctly? I hope so. I mean, they go every day with them on and they have extras in their backpack. I mean, my kids do know how to wear masks, but you're right. I mean, not everyone fits right. And you, I mean, you can't, you see adults not wearing their mask correctly where they're like under their nose or there's too big of a gap. So no, I agree. Like th this is a priority. Like let's get these teachers vaccinated. Yeah, I get a nasty note almost every other day from somebody who says they ran a picture of an adult wearing their mask wrong and how dare we and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's a news photo. You know, we can't control <laughs> whether people wear masks. That's life. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Should I wear two masks instead of one to protect myself from the coronavirus? Lord Johnston, this seems like it's getting into the silly season, but that's the new recommendation in some quarters. Yeah, I, I don't know if, I mean, I feel like you, Chris Quinn, probably have the best mask, so you were probably okay. But I did tell my husband to wear a surgical mask underneath his gloss mask when he went to the grocery store this weekend. Dr. Fauci has said publicly that common sense tells you wearing two masks is likely more effective than one. President Joe Biden has taken to wearing two. But other experts say that you should be wearing an N95 mask or a KN95 mask. Those are still used largely by healthcare workers. The CDC is not helping. They haven't put any guidance out on this. And we all know that the mask guidance has changed since the beginning of the pandemic. But there's kind of this idea that while two masks is not as effective as maybe wearing one high quality mask, it's better than a single mask. And if you wear a surgical mask with a good fitting snug cloth mask, especially one with a high thread count, then you're probably more protected. Yeah, but this is dumb at this point because <laughs> the KN95 masks are available. The N95 masks are becoming available. Other mask companies like Honeywell are making masks with N95 quality filters. And you know, in the beginning, you couldn't get high quality masks to save your life. But now you can. And to wear two masks, it doubles up all that stuff. People get annoyed by all the moisture on your face and and some people find it more difficult to breathe. The N95 and KN95 masks are designed so that you can breathe and they filter it out. And I just I'm surprised that this is the way we're going 
instead of really making it much more easy for Americans to get the high quality masks. Wait, you're surprised that we're getting the masks wrong? I mean, (laughs) everything about the masks has been a lie. And that's what that's what bothers me about this is, you know, wear two masks, wear two masks. Why isn't the government advocating? Let's get the high quality masks. And if there aren't enough of those to go around, do what it takes to get them around. It's 11 months into this thing. We're a big industrialized nation. If we can't get masks made, what the hell is wrong with us? I just, I was, I'm surprised by this one. Look, from the day one, we, when they said, don't wear a mask, it doesn't do anything. We called bull. You know, then they said, wear a mask because it protects others. We said, no, it protects you too. And then they said, okay, okay, the mask does protect you. We were saying that from day one. I'm calling BS on the two mask thing. That's the wrong way to go. We should be wearing high quality masks that filter out the virus. That's, that's why you wear them. Right. Yeah. No, I I don't disagree. I, I think you're right, especially with the variants, you know, kind of gaining speed and they're, you know, right. some percentage more contagious. Like you, you don't want to be this close to a vaccine and then get really sick. Right. It's just that it's the high quality mask is the way to go and we ought to be able to make them and make them cheap so everybody can get one. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many judges will President Joe Biden get to nominate for the federal bench in Cleveland pretty much right away? Jane Cahoon, this is an interesting development after Donald Trump packed the court with a whole bunch of judge appointments. Remember, they wouldn't approve Obama's nominations. They were keeping them vacant so that Trump could do it. All of a sudden, Biden will have some influence on federal courts. Yeah, this is interesting. And it's interesting when you look at the bigger picture, too. He's going to get to nominate at least two in the coming months, because there's two longtime federal judges who are taking what they call senior status. That's uh, U.S. District Judges James Gwynn and Dan Polster. They gave notice to Biden's staff that they're shifting to senior status today. And then there's a third judge, Judge Solomon Oliver, who said he's also giving serious consideration to taking senior status, and he's going to announce a decision soon. So what what the senior status does it they they still remain on the court and can take a decreased workload or their same workload. And then they get to have, you know, another judge appointed to replace them. And Judge Patricia Gahn, the, the chief judge for the Northern District, said this is going to enhance things. She said we'll have more judicial officers to handle the issues before the court. And with senior status, we don't lose the experience or the historical perspective that they they bring to the bench. Now, the bigger picture, as you said, was, you know, had they decided last year they were going to do this, then then Trump would have had the ability to name even more judges. And as you said, yeah, he's had a significant impact on the judiciary already. But it's funny, like Gwen sent his letter to Biden's office the day of the inauguration, January 20th. And um, I guess this is happening all over the country. John Coniglia talked to a uh, professor who said, he suspects the numbers are going to continue to go up, that the judges were waiting to see who won the election and who would who would control the Senate. So all three of these judges, Holster, Gwynn and Oliver, were nominated by President Clinton. Well, it's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was trying to do, but the, um, the cancer got the yeah. best of her. Be interesting to see who we get. We got lots of Democratic judges in the area, I'm sure, that would love a chance to be on the federal bench. I wonder if also if Biden does what Trump does and tries to find young people that will be around for a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is something that usually Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown and Republican Senator Rob Portman 
work together on pretty well. So we'll, we'll see. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it for this episode. And we got to wrap it up because Laura's got to get off to a dentist appointment. <laughs> Chris Ranowski will be back tomorrow. We'll have a full house. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. Mm-hmm.